I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. I hope all is well. Welcome to episode 93 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Mary Jean Packer, owner of Bat and Kill Fibers in Greenwich, New York. Bat and Kill Fibers is a commercial scale carding and spinning mill for fiber farmers and manufacturers of yarn and fiber products. Mary Jean Packer is involved in a number of farm to fabric initiatives, including the Hudson Valley Textile Project. She advocates for locally sourced and sustainably processed fibers, and I'm excited to share our fascinating conversation with you all today. Hey, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you found yourself in the world of textiles? You know, I can't really remember when I wasn't in the world of textiles. Um, I've been involved and fascinated by knitting, woven fabrics, um, quilting, any kind of textile, uh, my, just my whole life. Some of my very earliest memories go back to this cute little red cabled hand knit baby sweater that one of my dad's buddies made for me. Um, another early memory of an aunt sending me these fabulous scraps of fabric. She had a dressmaker sew for her and she sent me all the scraps and I decked out my dolls and all my girlfriend's dolls in in brocade and silk. It was just amazing. Um, So I just, I can't remember not being involved with textiles. Wow, that's such a such a beautiful story. You are you the president or founder or owner of Bat and Kill Fibers? Oh yes, all, all of the above. Um, I started the business in two thousand and nine, um, and we acquired used yarn processing equipment from all over North America and um, set up the mill here in Washington County. It's a rural county just north of Albany, New York. And um, we had barely gotten going making yarn um, in a building that we were a shared space when a horrible fire broke out in the other half of the building, but it spread into our half of the building And on June 27th, 2010, I watched the dream go up in smoke. Included with it uh, was my life savings. And that was a hard choice Mm. to make what to do right then. My youngest two kids, twins, um, had just finished their second year of college. Um, I really didn't have enough money to keep them going on to school. It all burned up. I, I had insurance, but only on the value of the equipment, not of any of the startup costs or not replacement value of the equipment, just loan value. Um, The Washington County Local Development Corporation had graciously made us an attractive low-interest loan on 80% of the value, and they would have been very willing to have just taken the insurance check and forgiven the loan, and that would have been that. But there was no way I could have gotten another loan then to move ahead. So we made the decision. It wasn't easy, and a a dear friend of mine who's also a local sheep farmer really coached me through it, said, you know, we're all counting on you that we need this mill to help add value to our fleece and you've just got to find a way to do it. Three other dear friends who all had come into some money through losses of loved ones whose insurance paid them um, made angel investor loans to me. The county let let our business keep making payments on machine that didn't exist. 
so there was no collateral for them to collect on. And our landlord, our current landlord, said, I have an empty building. I'll, em I'll get it ready for you. You can move in and we'll figure something out. The local tractor dealer came and salvaged the equipment he could onto the back of these giant trucks that load and unload tractors. And they stored it under their overhang until uh, we could get the building renovated enough to put in what we salvaged. And I bought all um, new used equipment, again, all over North America, had it trucked in and set up. And on Christmas Eve 2010, so it's our nine-year yarn-making anniversary in the new location coming up this month, um, we made yarn again. Wow, what a phenomenal story. And to kind of hear the way that your community really showed up and helped you in this process, it's its so beautiful to hear. The community is just fabulous. My manager um, has been with me right, right from the start. Um, and after the fire, um, Karen and I sat there and watched the building burn and... I'm like, what are we going to do? And she says, well, the wool is okay. We were storing the customer's wool in two of those um, old um, tractor trailer. You know how you can rent those that you see them? They say, rent me. Well, we packed all the wool into <laughs> two of them. And so they didn't, that wool wasn't hurt um, in the fire. So we had those trailers moved over to the new location and Karen hired a college girl, um, and they set up a tent in the parking lot of the new location and set out start sorting the wool. The thinking was we would rebuild one machine at a time each step in the process. So we rebuilt our scouring line first so that all the wool that Karen and Georgie had sorted, we could scour. And then we set up the picker next so the scoured wool could get picked. Then we found the carter, which was massive. It came on two tractor trailers from up by Quebec, Canada. Um, fascinating. Um, the guy who delivered it um, said, okay, I got your load. Where do you want it? And um, um, we said, well, just park it right there. And again, our friends at Capital Tractor came and helped move the machines into the building. And we got that set up, and then we were able to make carded roving, at least. Um, the One of the machines we had salvaged and had rebuilt after the fire was a pin drafter. So then we were able to make pin drafted roving. And finally, we found a spinning frame used in South Carolina, and it was trucked up here in, in one, one load. And um, got that set up, uh, a couple of... Folks that are, again, part of our community, um, very handy with machinery, uh, worked with us to get that set up. And so now we could be spinning. Um, the plier we had also salvaged in the fire, so we were able to ply. I bought a used skein winder, and that's all it took. It's so beautiful to hear the the resilience, you know, kind of like, dealing with such a traumatic experience and then to just go right away into working towards figuring out how to continue the pursuit of this passion. It speaks a lot to how much the textiles must mean to you and also the role that you play in the community and also the ways in which you are such an important part of how farmers are able to continue to farm and to bring their products to market. Can you kind of talk about how you collaborate with farmers in the area and the region that you live in? Sure, sure. Um, so I, I do think I'm um, sort of an obliger and um, I really wanted to help the farmers and that was a big part of of what kept me going, my friend Carol, who just really uh, bolstered me up when I had kind of melted down at her kitchen table um, and said, you know, we're counting on having having this. And 
when when it's somebody else counting on you, you just find a way um, to to do it. And it's not like we're the only mill in the Northeast, but we're the only mill in the Northeast that will take small batch processing and spin it in the semi-worsted method. Um, so that means we put everything through the pin drafters, which makes a much smoother yarn, um, especially for long wools like Romney or Border Leicester, Cotswold or Lincoln long wool. Um, Gotland now is more popular as well. Um, so not only are we making yarn for our farmer customers, but we're making it on commercial scale equipment. So it's very consistent. It's very high quality. Um, uh, so we, we really feel an obligation, if nothing else. We were also funded by the county economic development people who were looking to not only bring new jobs in the form of the people who work for me at the mill, but bring bring new opportunities for value-added products to the county's farms. Now, of course, we've way surpassed what those original goals were. Um, people send us their work from all over the Northeast, all over the U.S. We do the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival and pick up a truckload of long wool for custom processing from the farmers in Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware. Um, it's just amazing how our our reach has grown. And um, a second market that we weren't even aware of, besides the custom processing for farmers, uh, in 2009, 10 years ago, didn't really exist. If someone had said, I'm an indie dyer, can you help me with breed-specific, locally sourced and sustainably processed materials? I wouldn't know what they just said. Uh, I don't think the, the independent <laughs> dyers were calling themselves even indies or indie dyers then. and It certainly wasn't well understood, those that were doing dyeing, where their bases came from. Um, more and more, every year I see this, more indie dyers want not just a base that differentiates them from the next indie dyer, but also a base that's locally and ethically sourced and and processed with minimal um, processing, not not something, some compound from a foreign country that's, that's had an awful lot of miles uh, put on it. Um, more and more, there people are calling and saying, "I need something that where you can verify for me um, that this has been been made in a way that's very sustainable." And can you kind of talk about specifically the services that you provide at the mill, and also talk about how you are working sustainably? Like, what are the sustainable aspects? Um, so our services range, you can stop anywhere in the process. If all you want is to have our gals sort and class your wool or your alpaca and you, you just don't have a flat spot and that's all you need, you can stop there. Or once we've done that, you can have us scour it and stop there. Or scour and pick and stop there. Uh, one of the more popular processes is wash, pick, and then card. Um, people like that wide roving that comes off our carder and they use it in a lot of the craft industries for um, three-dimensional needle felting for the base of felting machines. My my very good good friend Gail Paranello who owns um, Hudson Valley Fibers provides custom needle felting on a flatbed wide um, felting, felt making machine. And so she'll take those strips of roving and make that into sheets of felt that then is sold to, to designers for making anything from a beer cozy to a laptop bag um, or more three-dimensional things as, as well. Insoles are very popular. Um, so that that is where maybe um, twenty percent of our business ends with with the just the carded roving. Then we do sell some plain pin drafted roving, especially to 
farmers who do farmers markets or fiber festivals where there'll be a lot of hand spinners who are interested in working with breed specific wools. We see now with the Shave Them to Save Them project that's really trying to raise awareness of heritage breeds of sheep that uh, many farms who have those heritage breeds are asking for just some roving back because the, the hand spinners have really gotten behind that Shave Them to Save Them project and um, want to make a, um, a, a study, a book, a portfolio of, let's say, every one of the breeds. Um, and so the only way they can have um, their own material back like that is to work with a, a, a mid-sized commercial mill like, like ourselves. Um, so then the next, of course, the bulk of our work is, is spinning the yarn. Um, since that original spinner, we've added a second one that's similar to that, but geared a little differently that enables us to make not just yarn for the hand knitting industry, uh, but also yarn for machine knitting and um, weaving of, at all scales, power looms or hand looms. And so about half the yarn we make now is for the hand knit industry still, be it farmers or brands. Um, we're very happy to be supporting a startup called Hudson and West. Um, Hudson and West has just taken off. It's We're so happy for them. The, the founders are two really marvelous women who really poured everything they have into getting this company launched. And uh, we're so happy to see see how it's taken off. And we also um, spin for some other brands, including um, Quince & Co's Stonewall line. Um, we spun for years for Classic Elite. Uh, it's very sad to see that company go. And we also spun for the Taki brand at Stacy Charles. Um, we spin all of that on our old spinner because it's hand-knit yarn. Uh, but now on our machine knit and wovens line, we're working with any number of designers and studios. And probably our biggest accomplishment in the last year is partnering with uh, another dear friend, Lily Marsh, from Lily Marsh Studios near here in Glens Falls, New York. And we met through uh, a nonprofit that we're both members of, the Hudson Valley Textile Project. And, and through that, the yarn we've been making for Lily Marsh Studios has been turned into wovens, into yard goods. So now you'll see people wearing a tunic or a skirt, a jacket, um, all sorts of, of home decors made out of fabric, woolen fabric that we've spun the yarn for. Uh, so it's all, that's very exciting to us to be doing that. We also partnered with Newberry Knitting, which is a, a knitting mill in Schenectady near here. And we make a line of fingerless gloves and hats. And now we've also added socks to our machine knit offerings. And all of those are selling really well. In fact, I don't want anyone to be rushing to the Etsy page to buy a hat because we're, we're sold out till after Christmas on the hats. Wow, that's phenomenal. Something that I'm I'm kind of interested about is two episodes ago, we had someone on the podcast who she works in uh, New York City and we were kind of talking about the possibility of the fashion industry beginning to take interest in working with and collaborating with farmers and mill owners. And I haven't had the opportunity to speak to very many people in your position. And I'm kind of curious if you are affected by the fast fashion industry or what it's like to, what what would it take for you to be able to collaborate with a designer that is producing clothes? Although you've mentioned that you're doing that already, but kind of like, I guess I'm curious of like where you stand within the conversation. So the best known brand that we've worked with on ready to wear is the best made company. And they actually sent a film crew up from New York city 
to film in the mill and film at the farm where we sourced the wool from. And they made a line of menswear hats and sweaters, and they call it the Nor'easter line. So a rugged, rib knit, um, full-fashioned, that had it knit at another fabulous knitting mill that runs on stole machines called Simply Knitting out in Queens. Um, really a beautiful line of, of garments. Uh, so we've we've had an opportunity to see what it takes to work with a brand and to work with large-scale knitting mills. Uh, but the bottom line is that fast fashion has changed the consumer's expectation of being able to not just wear garments for a season, but wear garments for a week, wear, wear garments one time to buy things and how often do you see something for sale on eBay? New with tags. They bought it, they never even wore yeah. it. Um, the clothing that is made, be it knit or, or woven and then cut and sew, with the yarn that we produce, that clothing is way too expensive to be fast fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that in this current textile system where consumers are kind of used to these really small prices, would you say that as a a fiber mill owner that owning a mill is rare or more difficult to survive within this system? Oh, for sure. Um, Battenkill Fibers is named for a river, the Battenkill River, that starts up in the Green Mountains of Vermont and and empties into the Hudson River right here in Greenwich. So, so we're at the widest point of the Batten Kill here at, at the mill. Um, but there used to be 13 mills in our town along the Batten Kill, and now there's only ours. Um, there used to be oh, wow. mills all up and down every tributary of the Hudson River. Now there's only ours. There used to be mills along every major river, now in New York, there's only ours. Um, the The whole economy related to textiles has only made two shifts in in all of the history of um, settlement in, in the Northeast. First, everyone here was hand processing everything. They sheared their sheep. They they washed it. They hand spun it. They hand wove it. And he kept a whole lot of women and girls busy for every waking hour of winter months. And that's where people's fabric came from. Um, They had one or two garments a year, and they wore them every day. Um, They probably didn't call it accessorize in 1791, but that's what they did. They put the kerchief on, they took the kerchief off, they put on a brooch, they took the brooch off. There they go, they had four outfits. Uh, And that's how textiles were here 200 years ago. Then the Industrial Revolution made it possible to to spin and weave, but the cloth still had to be cut and sewn here in in the community. And all of the the wool was, was sourced locally and brought into the mills and Um, That was what people wore for clothing, really, in that model, until World War II, until a global economy took took shape. And sure, in the last hundred years before that, um, mills in New England became less profitable and um, many moved um, to the, the southern states because of more favorable climate. Um, access to cheaper power. Um, so for all the things you ever learned in, in U.S. history class, uh, you see playing out in in textiles for sure. But then the move is in my lifetime. Um, when I was a little girl, you only had a few outfits. You would have one, my mother would have one suit that she bought new, or my father They might buy a couple of shirts or blouses with that, but they only bought one new wool suit uh, per winter. 
and in summer um summer dressing was was not the way it is now with an outfit for every event um you you just wore those clothes and you wore them year after year you you had them mended you pressed them you know all all of that has has changed and that's just in in my lifetime but fortunately the other thing that's happened in the last 10 years is there's some people who've raised their hand and said wait a minute where do all these clothes go how how are they returning to the soil um what what about the microfibers in 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 fake clothes clothes that are made from plastics where are those microfibers going every time i wash something um so there's definitely an awareness uh, an awareness among the same people who are really concerned about sustainability who are really concerned about um climate change and and living on a very small planet that's getting very dirty very fast um and so those people bless their hearts are the ones standing in line in our booth at Rhinebeck to buy a yard of fabric at $80 a yard they're willing to support the farm support the mill and our employees support the weaver and and really say here's what I'm going to spend on the only new garment I have this winter and I'm going to make sure that it is in a, a sustainably produced locally sourced very high quality piece of fabric Mm. And on the topic of fostering sustainability, can you talk about how you're fostering sustainability environmentally, socially, financially, and maybe what are some of the challenges in maintaining your projects from, you know, this point on? Um, let's see here. Uh, that's, that's a giant question, you know. Um, let, let's break it <laughs> if, down. If there are and, any challenges, <laughs> and, and we'll we'll talk about um, environmental sustainability first. Um, to me, mm-hmm. that means a couple of different things. It means trying to source my materials as close to the mill as I can. Um, but that leads to a challenge because the consumer wants a very soft fiber. Um, merino sheep and other fine wool breeds really don't do well in New England at a commercial scale. Uh, we can source some fabulous quality fleeces from flocks nearby that the shepherds have coated. They put a coat on the sheep to keep their fleeces clean. Um, but the challenge is getting that wool clean. So. The options then to meet the society demand for soft fine wool is this. We either have to buy the wool from the western US, which is still better than buying from New Zealand, or we buy it locally at a, a lower quality and then have to get it clean somehow to be able to use it. So now you get another mm-hmm. environmental challenge. We can clean it here in a very small scale scouring line inside our mill. Um very labor intensive, very water intensive. Or we can bale it up and ship it all the way to South Carolina in a truck and have it scoured there at a large, very large scale commercial scouring operation and then have that baled back up there and shipped here. So we've put a lot of miles on that material. It's still less miles than if it came from New Zealand, but it's starting to be about the same as if we bought it in Colorado and had it shipped directly to South Carolina and then from there to here. So we in talking about sustainability and challenges, um the the society is demanding that fine wool. If we could change a societal expectation to be able to understand that the thing I'm wearing is maybe not 19 micron soft, but it's pretty darn soft. Um I can find things locally that would would be much easier and much more environmentally sustainable to get clean than the very fine wool. 
Now, a third option to buying wool in the West, buying wool locally and shipping it to South Carolina, is one that the Hudson Valley Textile Project is now pursuing. And that is in partnership with other fiber shed affiliates all over the Northeast. And what we're looking at is what is the feasibility of building our own scouring mill? Not at Batten Kill Fibers. I've got enough on my plate here. Um, but there are other people in the Northeast that are coming to the same realization and have the infrastructure in place, old buildings with plenty of water, um, industrial quality sewer systems that could be given incentives to develop this business that would support not just our mill, but um, the other operations in the Northeast. So that's just one thing about sustainability. Um, I know this podcast doesn't go on forever, but um, I did just want to talk a little <laughs> about the electricity and the opportunities we've had to make these older machines. So as you know, we're running on 30, 40, 50 year old machines um, with big old motors um, to run these machines. Uh, we have to run these machines. Uh, we have invested in that help um, use less current, uh, especially on startup. Uh, you know, all the jokes about when we turn the machines on at our mill, the lights on the road go dim. Um, by adding the variable speed drives, we've been able to uh, really have a, a, an amazing impact on our on our power. If we could just have that same impact on our, our heat, we would be delighted. So being in a rural location, uh, we don't get natural gas the way um, if we were in a city, gas would come to us and we could heat the water and heat the facility with the gas, but we have to buy bottled gas. There's paper mills near us that have invested in bringing a natural gas line to their mill, but infrastructure being what it is in a rural area, uh, <laughs> we can see where the pipeline is, but they have no more capacity for us to tap onto it. So little things like that could improve our sustainability are certainly challenges, but the kinds of things that are on our to-do list um, to address. Now, you asked me about financial sustainability, LaShawn, and um, that is a real challenge given the fast fashion consumer perspective. Clearly, the people who stood in line at Rhinebeck to buy those yards of fabric understood exactly what they were spending their money on and why that was so important. But the average consumer is is really questioning $80 a yard fabric. Um, but what if you do those numbers back? And uh, a dear friend of mine, Tammy White, who um, owns Wing and a Prayer Farm, just wrote with her daughter, Shar, a, a very good in-depth article on what is the cost of raising a sheep and going all the way to yarn with that sheep's fiber. And it's in the current issue of Taproot magazine. And anybody who wants to really dig into the financial aspects of, of fiber farming, it's a very, very good detailed explanation of what it costs to raise a sheep sustainably and ethically in the Northeast. These are small flocks, um, lovingly cared for, lovingly shorn, humanely treated at all times, that doesn't come cheap. So from a, a sustainability standpoint, what, what are the, the barriers and opportunities? And I think some of it has to do with scale and some of it has to do with, with collaboration. We work with a group of about 40 sheep farmers in our area who mainly raise their sheep for meat, for lamb, um, but they still have the wool that comes from that. And they've formed a group called the Southern Adirondack Fiber Producers Cooperative. Every year they have what's known as a wool pool, in which they bring the wool that came from these sheep um, to, to the fairgrounds. Actually, we rent the fairgrounds because we need a lot of room to collect 15,000 pounds of wool in three days. 
and uh, we're having that cleaned and processed. Now, uh, that's the material we're using for our socks and hats and gloves. Um, so that's just waste material and material that the farmers wouldn't have had a market for without working together as a cooperative. Any one of them would have never in a million years had enough wool to make hats or gloves or socks. And in fact, this year we also made a couple dozen blankets for the Southern Adirondack Fiber Producers machine knit blankets that uh, really ended up being stunning. And they're selling them at farmer's markets, the same places they go to sell their cuts of lamb meat. They now have this, these value-added blankets to, to offer. Um, so, again, we're talking about financial sustainability. The, the working together enables a small farmer, sheep farmer, to leverage um, opportunities that, that he or she would have never been able to access alone. So it's not always about the scale of your farm, it's the scale about the group of farms that you're collaborating with. Thank you for sharing that with us. We actually had Tamara White on the podcast on, I believe it was episode 66. And um, I'm really looking forward to looking for that article. We'll definitely make sure that we leave that in the show notes um, when we publish this episode. Hearing you say that makes me remember the conversation and how beautifully she sort of um, articulated her process and how it wasn't just the physical labor. There was also this very passionate undertone to everything that she does. And, you know, it is really important for us to find ways to communicate to consumers that the people who are producing these things are people and that that price is a sincere reflection of their work and their labor. And so I fully and completely understand. Do you have any new projects or future prospects that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, you know I do, and you know I'd love to. Um, I, be, <laughs> before that, though, I, I just wanted to go back and talk a little bit more about the Hudson Valley Textile Project and it, its goals toward educating consumers has really been its focus, educating um, fashion designers, educating future fashion designers. Um, we worked with um, a career and tech center, a high school program for fashion students in um, the Hudson Valley to get a grant from the New York Ag in the Classroom program to develop a curriculum called Fabric Comes from Farms, and to work with these young fashion students to actually make a garment for their capstone project using locally sourced materials. And so they've had all of us, the sheep farmer, the mill owner, the weaver, into their studio. Um, our friend Laura Sansone from New York Textile Lab is going to talk with them about the difference between garment dyeing and dyed in the wool and um, skein dyeing and show them some plant dyes that they could consider as even one further step in in sustainability in the Hudson Valley. Um, that's still to come after their Christmas break. Um, so Hudson Valley Textile Project is really concerned or focused, focused on educating consumers at all levels, fashion designers, aspiring fashion designers, and consumers. We've done a little public relations work through at Rhinebeck where all of the Hudson Valley Textile Project member farms and designers and makers um, are branding things available in their booth and putting up point-of-sale signage to draw attention to this thing, this Hudson Valley Textile Project. And now more recently, we've received a, a donation from an anonymous benefactor that has enabled our project to retain uh, Gail Zucker, who's just a fabulous knitwear photographer and now sheep photographer. In fact, she's going by She Shoots Sheep Shots. And <laughs> we've spent two days with uh, over a dozen uh, sheep farmers, and the profiles are as much of the farmer herself or himself than of the sheep 
although we set out to provide some breed-specific information that would help consumers know a little more about their sheep and how it lives and what kind of fiber it makes. Um, so sadly, the Hudson Valley Textile Project is an all-volunteer effort, and while we have the resources from a benefactor to retain a professional photographer, um, us volunteers spent a few days organizing the, the photo shoots and, and working with the photographer, and now we have this this absolutely fabulous piece of work that needs to go out into the world. We need um, a gallery show. We need publications. We need to get these images on a, a first-rate website. And um, anyone listening that has an interest in volunteering or being an intern to the Hudson Valley Textile Project to help advance this, this initiative, uh, by all means, reach out to me or any of the leadership of the Textile Project. We'd really love to hear from you. So anyhow, LaShawn, sorry, you asked me a question um, about the future and what if I got up my sleeve and I promised I would, would share that. And it's, it's a four-letter word and um, it's really changing the face of, of New York's textiles from, from farm to fabric and that's hemp to fabric and that's hemp. Um, hemp legal crop to grow. Um, and we are now able to use financing from federally secured bank deposits, so FDIC banks, until the, the recent farm bill, weren't able to lend for equipment that would be used to process hemp. Um, but that has changed, and so we can now use our equipment or purchase new equipment. The problem is there is no equipment anywhere in the U.S that can get us all the way to textile quality combed top um, from textile quality hemp plantations. Um, so we've been working very hard with a number of uh, universities, SUNY, State University of New York at Morrisville is doing a lot of work on seed varieties. Um, SUNY New Paltz is working on understanding the material characteristics of hemp and other bast fibers like linen is another best fiber flax. And then the folks at SUNY State University of New York FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City, have um, textile engineers who are also looking at um, what to make with these materials. Um, so we're, we're really excited to be at the, the forefront of working with hemp, not just the forefront in New York, but the forefront in the United States. Um, it's easy enough to take any old hemp and cottonize it and use it as a, a composite. Um, so to make a non-woven um, felt, um, that that's pretty that's pretty easy, and that may be the answer. But at this point, we're not really ready to give up on what would it take to spin any kind of bast fiber. Um, we know we can do it on our machines if we can get the the hemp plant prepared properly um, because we can buy hemp combed top from Poland or Belarus or wherever, Lithuania, and blend it with wool at our pin drafters and run it through our spinners. So we know it can be done, and uh, it's just a matter of getting from the, the crop to the combed top locally. And um, it's just a matter of time, and uh, I'm certainly not going to retire until I've got that one figured out. <laughs> awesome. How exciting. I'm I'm so excited to see where this is going and also just to hear about it. What an exciting time, you know. We've had this conversation about, you know, a lot of the challenges, but to hear so much progression in such a positive direction. I mean, I'm super, super, super um, excited to see where things go. Where can people go on social media and the internet to get in contact with you and to support your projects um, and to follow your work? Well, the fastest, easiest is to just go to Batten Kill Fibers. It's with an S, BattenKillFibers.com, which is our, our website. 
if people want to get in touch with me on the website, it says email us. Just push the button and it'll come to me. Um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you'll get the whole story. There's my three really cute little grandbabies on there and the things I'm knitting, <laughs> but also things we're making for our customers and lots of behind-the-scenes videos and photos of what goes on in, at the mill. So on social media, on Instagram, I'm just MJ Packer. It's nothing very fancy, just plain old MJ Packer. And um, people can find me, find me there, or of course, Facebook. Awesome. So before you go, we have one last question that we ask everyone that joins a podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? I have thought about that. Um, I was interviewed and really honored to be featured in this absolutely beautiful magazine called Where Women Create Work. And um, if you haven't seen that magazine, it's it's for sale at places like AC Moore and Joanne Fabrics um, and Barnes and Noble in the in the fancy magazine section. So it's called Where Women Create Work. And when I was interviewed for that, they asked me that same question you just did, Lashon. They they wanted me to give them some advice, some tips for small business. So I invented seven tips for small business, and um, I could breeze through those if you'd like to hear my seven inventions. Absolutely. Please share. Well, so thing one um, I mentioned, and that's the importance of business networks and community groups. So um, if you don't have a, a network, well, make one. And that's sort of like our story with the Southern Adirondack Fiber Producers. They had wool. They didn't have a market. They figured out if they all worked together, they might be able to sell their wool. So, one, take advantage of business networks and community groups. Two, and you just talked about this, what's the role of social media? Uh, it's powerful. Every chance you get, use social media to tell your story. Um, so many people come up to me at Vogue Knitting or Rhinebeck and say, oh, I've been following you on Instagram, and um, it's so interesting to know what it really takes to make our yarn. Or like Tammy White, I mean, she's got 20,000 people following her to see what's happening at Wing in a Prayer Farm. Use social media to tell your story. And this next tip is hardly a tip for textile makers or for small business but it, I think it deserves to be said in that top three. And that is show kindness every day, all day to everyone. Uh, it's amazing what a little bit of kindness seems to get done. And I think it all goes back to when my building was on fire and the people who came and tried to help save the building, tried to help our business get back on its feet. The employees that work for me, they could work anywhere else. There's so low unemployment in our area. It's its phenomenal. Yeah, I have 16 people who are kind to each other and, and kind to me by coming to the mill every day and sharing in our dream. Um, number four, I, I say you need to keep current on trends. Um, it's not just about colors and fashions that are changing. Um, but it's it's big picture trends. Look at how breed-specific yarn matters to people now, how sustainability matters. Um, people just need to stay up on it. Go to trade shows, read publications. Um, you need to stay current. And as though current isn't enough innovation, tip number five, innovate. Um, and just keep on learning. And, you know, I've talked with you already about industrial hemp and how we hope to really develop the processes and machinery to make that a reality. And, and my last couple of tips are almost cliche. I hate to say this, but I need to because I believe it. And one is um, working smarter, not harder can only get you so far. And you hear everyone say, oh, quit working so hard. Just be smarter about it. No, I've studied it all for 60-some years. And at the end of the day, you also have to be willing to work hard. 
getting into the textile industry is not for the faint of heart. And, and finally, um, don't be afraid of making some big changes. If something you're doing is losing money this year and lost money the year before, chances are it's going to lose money again next year. And why is it? you got to get out a balance sheet and figure out what's coming in and what's going out. And if you're passionate about wanting to stay in the fiber industry, then you have to find a way to make sure more is coming in than going out. So there you go. Seven tips. Wow. And amazing. <laughs> amazing seven tips. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and sharing such a beautiful story of resilience. I really appreciate your openness and how much advice you've given. Well, I feel like it's the, the least I can do. And every year we welcome interns for a day, interns for a week, um, tours of groups of makers and artists and um, that the welcome mat is always out although if you're a group of more than two i'd appreciate a week's notice just so we can plan our production around accommodating a larger group awesome thank you so much for joining the podcast yo you're welcome thanks for having me That's a wrap. If you're interested in finding out more about Mary Jean Packer and Bat and Kill Mill, you can find links in the show notes at www.chisyarn.com slash episode 93. So that's it for 2019. And I am wishing you all a very happy and exciting holiday season. See you all in 2020. Until next time, happy weaving.